You're listening to the first episode of the Alan Gray podcast. My name is Tamarin Lam. I'm head of retail distribution at Alan Gray, and I'm going to be your host for today's episode. We've put this podcast together for financial advisors and their clients. And our aim is that it will cover a range of topics from markets to industry or economics and maybe even personal finance. But at the end of each episode, we hope that you will have been provided with some different perspectives on some topical issues. And also you'll get a closer sense of how we look at the world, particularly when we're putting your portfolios together. Today, I'm going to be speaking to Duncan Artis. He's our Chief Investment Officer at Alan Graham. And also, we're very happy to have Alec Cutler here, who is a portfolio manager at Orbis, and he runs the Orbis Global Balance Fund. And the topic of today's conversation is going to be how should we think about investing in an energy short and volatile world? So before we start on the investment part of our podcast, I wanted to ask you both two quite simple questions. Uh, so Duncan, you had two weeks in an accounting firm before you joined Alan Gray. So maybe you can tell us why investing and why Alan Gray. Yeah, well, Tamara, first of all, it was a pay at the accounting firm. But no, when I look back, my uh, grandfather was always interested in the stock markets. And in fact, I think for my 12th birthday, he bought me my first ever share certificate and the company happened to go bankrupt. So that was a, a good first lesson in how tough in investing is. And uh, that kind of went through to my father, who was a, a runner on the stock exchange. If you remember, uh, guys used to run around with a piece of chalk and, and mark each of the the trades. So it was kind of it, it came through. I was never sitting every day trading shares, but it's something I was always interested in. Um, but in South Africa, kind of becoming a chartered accountant was sort of this base level of, of competence. Um, and so I did business science and then I did my postgraduate in accounting. And after two weeks of auditing, I said, no, this is not for this is not for me. And I, I joined actually as an intern at a small stockbroking firm and then went to a smaller asset manager before I was lucky enough to, to be able to join Alan Gray. I think I had a very lucky time to join Alan Gray as well. So sometimes, you know, you just take the right fork in the, in the road. Okay. And Alec, so a question for you. How would you, what, what do you think differentiates an average investor from a truly great investor? I think that's a great question and not just because I asked it once. Um, I think but, I might have got it from you. <laughs> in, the, in the late 90s, I asked Bill Miller of um, Lake Mason Value Trust fame. Uh, this was when the dot-com bubble was just flying. What separated the, the great investors from the average investors? And he looked at me square in the eye and said, survival of your personal investing hell. And I thought, huh, okay. And then about a year and a half later, the dot-com bubble exploded and watched um, much of the market go through their own personal investing hell. Saw a lot of um, horse-driving former traders and, and growth investors teaching uh, PE at the local high school. And things like that. And actually, talking about the dot-com bubble is probably leads me nicely into my first question. So the beginning of this year seems to have kind of reinforced that idea that themes last kind of for a long time until they don't. Uh, and we've seen a big pullback in some of the stocks that have been running hard for a number of years um, and obviously escalated by the conflict in Russia and Ukraine. So, you know, given that sell-off, given what looks like a lot of volatility, uh, and a lot of this has been commented on. Uh, I guess my question for you is, what do you think people are missing? What I think people are missing now, I, I think what we're seeing people say now is, man, these things are off 30%, 40%, good quality companies, and their PEs are now 17, 18 times earnings. Uh, and what they're missing is what we saw in 2000, 2001, which was, that was the same thing people said back then, then margins crashed. Uh, and we are we're currently sitting at margins that are multiples of the margin in 1999-2000. Uh, so I, I think we haven't seen the second, third, and fourth shoe to drop on profitability and margins. Yeah, and, and maybe just from us, a term which we spoke about is often there's a difference between a cyclical top and a secular top. 
And I think if Alex's thesis is true, that means it's a secular top, which lasts for years and years and years. And so typically when bear markets start in a market or a sector, you have something called the generals are the only people that are left. So if you don't own the disruptor stocks, you don't own the weaker stocks and they fall, you go, well, that's fine because they were the more speculative ones. You know, it's the Microsofts, the Apple and the Googles. I own these great companies and you feel very comfortable. But when all of a sudden those stocks start to decline, that's when the real bear market starts because it's like being the general. You had an army behind you fighting the battle and you look back and there's no one there and you're all by yourself and it really is the last thing that sort of um, breaks investors uh, resolve in a, in a long term bear market which we could be about to have in, in American big tech stocks for a number of years. There's currently no concept in the market on in the in the business media that the Microsofts and uh, and um, Amazons and Googles of the world can have dropping earnings that's just not even a possibility so it's um, when that comes, it will be a shock. But these businesses have still got quite good tailwinds behind them in terms of fundamentals. So there isn't necessarily a kind of economic backdrop that causes a major shift in the fundamentals, is it? So some of that tailwind was accelerated during COVID, and competitors aren't sitting still. So you know, Amazon owned um, the web services cloud space, and uh, Microsoft saw it and said, I want some of that. Google saw it and said, I want some of that. Now IBM and Oracle and everybody else is trying to plow a niche into that. So it's um, that's the way capitalism works. And uh, the margin should drop there too. Like I think TikTok has overtaken Instagram in views in the US. I stand correct on that, but it's pretty close. So you thought no one could compete against Tencent or Meta. And all of a sudden, this company that grew out of China has become this global behemoth and is actually attracting more video time than, than some of the, the bigger companies. But I think, just to counter Alec on the one thing, I think the one thing that is different is that, well, not different, the balance sheets are not sitting with huge amounts of debt. So the one risk of shorting rather than not owning some of the disruptor stocks is Microsoft just might decide tomorrow to spend $40 billion on a share that you think is, is expensive. So I think that is the one thing to be careful of. Like it's one thing not owning a share. It's another thing shorting the smaller shares where these companies which, which sit with hundreds of billions, in some cases dollars uh, of cash in their balance, could buy out some of their competitors. And to me, that is the one risk that, that someone else could pay an irrational price. And I mean, how do the the fact that we're coming off what looks like four decades of declining interest rates, and there's clearly a reversal of that, and we've seen inflation pick up materially in most developed markets and here locally as well. I mean, how is that going to impact equity valuations? Because that's definitely disproportionately benefited growth over more value-oriented names. When rates were dropping, yeah. Um, I mean, that's a 40-year tailwind to, to growth, an amazing epic bull run in, uh, in bonds that was one of many tailwinds for, uh, for high-duration assets. The, um, I think what's going to happen here is the Fed is doing everything it possibly can do to keep a cap on the expectations for inflation lasting longer than X. And it's kind of like one of these cross this line and we'll make another line. And uh, the, the expectations for, uh, for inflation 10 years out is still very low. It's like 2.4%. That, when that starts creeping up to 4, 6, maybe 7%, what is going to happen is, is I think no matter what the Fed does, if the Fed sees that growth is getting stifled, the book on the Fed is they're going to start cutting rates. That is growth above all else. They'll take growth over inflation uh, because you have jobs. People have jobs and they feel like their number one job basically is to create employment. But what's going to happen to the growth stocks is even if the 10-year treasury yield goes down and is forced down by the Fed, that, that's a signal to shoot inflation back higher. And the valuations, the dividend discount models should shift from looking at the 10-year treasury as the discount rate to inflation as the, as the uh, discount rate, which further hurts growth shares. Forever, that's the 10-year the, the treasury has been used because if the Fed is doing its job, it kind of matches inflation. If the Fed then artificially lowers that relative to inflation, you should be shifting back to first principles. What is that dollar that I earn 25 years from now worth back today? Well, that's inflation discounting. That's not an artificial government bond rate. 
So they, you could have an acceleration in the devaluation of long-duration assets. And I guess, Samuel, it can also come through in, in the currency. So probably the most important long bond in the world, even though everyone looks at the U.S., is, is probably the Japanese market. So the Japanese central bank has said they will buy unlimited bonds at 25 basis points. In other words, for everyone, that's 0.25%. But the yen has just weakened 30%. So you're probably going to have inflation expectations in Japan at their highest levels forever. So you can control interest rates, but you can't control your currency. And something eventually breaks because I guess one of the counter to Alex's theories, uh, or I, I side with Alec, is you know a lot of people just talking about yield curve control. So after World War II, obviously the U.S. had very high debt. Uh, they put it in there and the Federal Reserve just said, we're not going to allow interest rates to, to rise. And actually interest rates did stay flat for a while. But when you have financial repression, it breaks out in all different kinds of asset classes because you're not allowing a, a clearing rate for the most important markets in the world, which are, which are long-dated sovereign bonds. I mean, everything is priced off the U.S. long-dated uh, sovereign bond. It becomes whack-a-mole, which is probably what we have now. Well, whenever it pops up, you just hit it back down again. They do something to hit it back down, then two more things pop up. We saw a lot of volatility in global markets and some of these really exciting so-called safe haven names dropped off. We saw like a... A, a significant escalation in conflict uh, in Europe, but actually South African markets fared quite well, and the rand or sort of strengthened at a time where we announced a relaxation in exchange controls. If, if we'd predicted those events kind of beforehand, I, I'm not sure that the, we would have predicted the outcome that we saw. So, so what has happened locally? So clearly, I think the strength of South African asset markets, and I mean currencies, bonds, and equities uh, would have surprised people in, in the first quarter. It's weakened somewhat since then. You could say, was it skill by South Africa or luck? It's very much, in my view, the latter. I don't think we skillfully uh, you know, navigated this any better than anyone else. It just so happened you know, that South Africa is basically a commodity-producing country. Um, so we produce coal, we produce iron ore, we produce the, the PGM metals. Um, and we can go into it later. I'm sure Alec has a lot to say about that. You know, underinvestment in mining for many years, um, inflation, supply chains coming back. It just created sort of a, a perfect sort of environment. And particularly some things in South Africa like PGM metals. You know, Russia is a big exporter of, of palladium. Um, there's a shortage of, of coal for energy. Globally, we happen to export coal. So um, South Africa has perennially been a twin deficit country. And what I mean by that means we import more than we export and we spend more than we earn. And you can't keep doing that forever, clearly. Um, and what surprised everyone is with these very high commodity prices and a slow economy. You remember, imports normally grow fast when you're growing fast because you're importing equipment, you're importing consumer goods. So you have this combination of, well, our exports are just flying on price and our imports are dropping. And so you had a current account surplus. The currency is not weakening. You're allowed, that allows you to have lower interest rates. Um, the windfall even though the government messed it up a little bit, as we know, with all the coal sitting on the roads that, that we didn't export, the windfall tax has allowed us to you know, have the emergency social grant, which helped people during COVID and allowed us to cut the corporate tax rate. And normally in crises, we'd be going the, the, other, way, the other way around. So I think a, a lot of what we've been spending some time on in the team is trying to understand how sustainable some of these things are. Because if they are sustainable, it's not only obvious to buy mining companies, it's what we've always called the second derivative. The companies that benefit from this environment I've just described, which can be banks, which can be retailers, um, which can be insurance companies, um, et cetera. So yes, it is. I think it has surprised a lot of people. But I, the way we've probably described it best is it's papering over the long-term cracks. Um, but there's no doubt. Uh, I'm not sure about this when I look at the margins of the, what the commodity companies are making at the moment. They sort of double Microsoft. Um, is that if this is the beginning of a long-term commodity bull market, and we're only in the first few years with a few bumps along the way, that's a tailwind for South Africa. And I saw S&P just upgraded our thing from sort of stable to positive, which I bet you a year ago no one would ever have thought was, was possible. So, Alec, what's your view? Is this the start of a long-term commodity super cycle, or, or is this just a temporary shift which has been caused by COVID disruptions and the escalation in, in Russia and Ukraine? I think that the preponderance of our conviction is weighted towards this is going to be a much longer cycle than than not. And um, as Duncan alluded, the conviction there comes from the lack of investment. So the the old saying that high commodity prices solve, solve high commodity prices is only true because capex comes in and builds production, and that's just not happening. It's it, it's 
it's bizarre when you look at these charts and you look at the chart of an oil price and you look at CapEx divided by revenues for oil companies, it's not coming off the bottom. And it's it's driven by ESG. It's driven by government edict that was driven by ESG. It's driven by uh, a real fear that you know maybe the commodity that I'm making will be illegal in five or ten years. And it's um, it's going to do the exact opposite of what should normally happen, and that means should commodity prices might continue to get higher. We're we're all as professional investors. We're sitting there. The time to, the time to sell a miner or an oil company is when they're cheap on earnings and cash flow, and we're looking at them, and we know why because the here comes the here comes the capex. We're not seeing the capex at all. Schlumberger, Halliburton, and Baker Hughes are scratching their heads on the quarterly call saying. We're seeing little upticks, but nothing like what the world needs to create more oil and natural gas. So just on the, the counter to that, Aaron, because then the natural question may be asked by clients, well, why isn't Alan Gray's top three shares BHP, Anglos, Glencore, plus Sassel, plus the PGM counter? So uh, I've been wrong about this. I've been right about it occasionally. I still worry, and we've done a lot of work at Alan Gray on the Chinese debt and residential and property and ability to invest at such a high level of, of GDP not forgetting that China is roughly two-thirds of seaborne demand for most commodities. So you sit with this thing in your head and you do understand the uninvestment, but underinvestment, apologies. But you also sit on the other side and have this big worry that if you told me in a year China collapses, I wouldn't be surprised at all. And then the iron ore price, which t- costs about $40 to take out the ground in the pulver in Australia, could be 60 And then BHP and the anglers are not going to be at the current share prices. So you have this weird sort of thing where you understand the longer-term story, but there's also this back of your mind you worry and as an example i think glencore which i think the clients knows are either our biggest or our second biggest share i stand corrected but in one or two divisions you know their margins are 60 to 70 percent ebitda margins this is not <laughs> you loss making and things are really terrible you are making lots of money uh, the big difference is the previous cycle uh, in commodities 2000 call it five to 2008 um, all the commodity companies made acquisitions at the peak they made greenfields expansions at the peak and the new CEOs and the new boards are so petrified of being painted with the same brush uh, with the cold eye of history <laughs> saying like you guys messed up that no one is spending capex so it's not just uh, that they, they're not spending capex they can't find it they also most of them are returning all the money via dividends and via buybacks now buybacks are normally a negative sign in the commodity sector as well um, but I, I guess it's just this judgment of for me the long-term story of underinvestment and inflation versus China's huge demand for many of the the metals that South African uh, commodity producers sell to them. Yeah, I think we are on the same page. Our our overweights in commodities are in in natural gas, LNG, and semiconductors. So we've kind of painfully been been more or less out of the uh, the other metals on the on the China risk, which is can't figure out why it hasn't hit yet. I mean, Duncan's talking about some of the sh- like maybe the short term deflationary pressures on commodities from China, but um, didn't necessarily argue against kind of long-term like upcycle in energy. And if we think that ESG is holding commodity producers or oil producers from investing in in capex, and we know their supply constraints, what solves it? You know, we know as a as a kind of globe, we want to reduce our dependence on fossil fuels, and we want to kind of move to cleaner energy. But h- how do we balance the fact that you know at the moment? What Germany's thoroughly dependent on Russia for uh, for natural gas, and you know probably what's their long term what's their long term prospects? Yeah, I mean the the number one thing is I, I'm waiting for a politician to put their hand up and say they were wrong. That yelling at um, at their national energy champions to stop producing fossil fuels uh, or to to shut down your nuclear resources was the wrong thing to do, but a politician is incapable of saying that. So instead, now they're yelling at them to say, you didn't produce enough, and uh, we needed to produce more, and we're going to put a price cap on what we pay, and we're going to charge a windfall profits tax because you're making too much money. So you, you said, what do we need to do? I think it's easiest for me to say, we do the opposite of that. The governments are just completely out to lunch, and they have effectively taken uh, – poor, ill-thought-out, or short-term drivers that have been developed by ESG, and they've politicized them and created regulations and laws 
to be popular that were contra to having a, a really good energy transition. Now everyone's been caught out. The ESG, ESG people kind of evaporate into the woodwork, leaving the politicians to try and solve it. And they really don't know how, and they're they're kind of flailing at this point. And if I can just add to to what Alex said there, you know, when you in investing, you're always learning, and I've learned a lot over the last six or twelve months about energy that I didn't know before. You know, it's easy just to look at Sassel, but I think what I've learned is all these global supply chains are, are very interlinked. You know, a shortage in natural gas here leads to a shortage of fertilizer here. Someone may have surplus natural gas there, but then the other country doesn't have import terminals because they've never imported LNG before. And so these sort of supply chain shortages, which end up in one area, end up going all across the, the world. And, and unfortunately, the one thing we're looking at is is food shortages globally. And you know, I encourage everyone to read Talia, my, my colleague's piece, and it was, was very good. And we look at countries like Sri Lanka and Kenya, you know, they're, they're real problems where you short energy, um, but you export things which haven't kept up with, with energy prices. Um, so I think that's the, the big thing that people perhaps have missed, that these complex supply chains are very, very difficult to understand, even for people who've worked in them for, for many years. I don't know if you agree, Alec. Yeah, but it's on. It's the supply chain on the other end as well, and where we're seeing uh, the best names in energy, best opportunities in energy right now are in the energy services companies. And what's happening is people have been out of energy so long, and they've been so burned. A lot of energy expertise and investing has been lost, and they're not connecting the dots between uh, a lack of a capacity and supply demand mismatch with the future upside for a Schlumberger. And if they know a Schlumberger, most investors, professional investors might know a Schlumberger. Well, maybe you can give us a bit of a context as to Slum- what Schlumberger okay. is well, for Schlumberger is the, the largest and most successful energy infrastructure company in the world. So they, they do the work. They do the, the high-tech engineering to get the well done properly, to find the right resource base, to do the 3D seismic, and to get the oil out in, in good shape. Um, and they have a lot of people that work with them, but it's the, it's the only company that didn't go free cash flow negative in 2020. So very, very high quality company. But under that there, there are hundreds of service providers in the energy service space that need to knit together their contribution in order to get things out, including sand. You need tons and tons and tons and tons of sand to do fracking. You need fracking guns. It's actually literally an explosive that you shove down the pipe and it explodes to open the rock up. You need the pipe. And this is high-grade iron and steel pipe. All of these things have to fit together properly in order to get the stuff out. What you're seeing in the U.S. now is everyone expected the fracking output to come racing back because it's considered short-term, meaning you can put the investment in and get it out in six weeks or so, whereas offshore oil might be six years. It's not happening. So the supply chains, I think, on either end have been messed up, and you can make investments on either ends and take advantage of the dysfunction in the middle. So is that where you would invest as opposed to kind of some of the shale producers in the U.S., which kind of at first glance should be able to benefit, be major beneficiaries of a short-term energy crisis? We have some of those, uh, but they are – it's it's too obvious, if you will. That's a that's a first level thing. They're getting picked over by the by the investors. The the big high quality ones are being bid up, and uh, and and this energy service space is being neglected. Also, critical energy infrastructure is being neglected. Everyone's completely blowing off that if you get the Permian re re going and and pumping more oil and gas out, you have a pipeline constraint to get it to the Gulf of Mexico. That's Kinder Morgan. But Kinder Morgan is sitting at a six percent free cash, nine percent free cash flow yield, six percent dividend yield. It hasn't done anything. The stock's just been flatlining. You need this critical energy infrastructure. So these these secondary and tertiary parts of of energy, and if you looked at mining as well, you know, Joy Joy Global is the makes the big cranes that if you wanted to make a new copper mine. You've got to bring these huge, huge, these monster cranes that we've all seen glossy pictures of. It's owned by Komatsu now. Komatsu's done nothing. The stock has done nothing. It's very cheap. And people just haven't got around. They don't have the confidence or conviction that this is going to last long enough to having to put more capacity in. To me, Tamron, just the important thing that I, I guess shows me how important energy is the Russian ruble is stronger than it was before the Ukraine war. 
just think about it. All the sanctions, all the banks not allowed to trade with them. The ruble is now stronger than it was before. And I was just reading up uh, just uh, on a slightly different thing from what Alex said. It can also go through to industrial companies because German companies and that metal companies in the middle of Germany, which are very important to the global economy, the precision sort of machine makers net, they all depend on each other's parts as inputs. And now they can't do it without the gas. So you don't just stop one company, you stop uh, a whole load. And I think it's more for, I guess, the Orbis portion of the portfolio than ours. But it is something you can definitely think about because someone's going to have to rebuild this infrastructure and do these things. And I, was, I agree with Alec that it's a good space to to look at, whereas people are looking at the obvious ones, which are the, I guess, just like with us, the mining companies versus the companies that benefit from servicing the mining company. So, Alec, what's the overall exposure to energy and energy services-related names in Orbis Global Balanced? And what's the most important or biggest exposure? So, you know, it's, it's arguable what... <clears throat> What should be called what? So it's somewhere between 22 and 24 percent, and remember that that is that's more than a third of the net equity exposure. So it's a that's a hefty position. Okay, and the um, the largest position then, or your uh, most favorite name? Maybe it's, not, maybe it's not the largest. So largest is Shell, and I think if if we were just going straight off valuation, then that should be that should also be my favorite. Uh, I don't really have you know massive massive confidence in their capital allocation ability um, but it is super super cheap on on free cash flow if you just annualize the cash flow that they announced for q1 and remember they hedge so the cash flow should be growing and growing and growing as we go through the year but if you just annualize q1 you can buy back every share and every bond in that shell has ever issued in four years that's ins- an insane valuation for a company that size and with that kind of diversity of energy exposure. But Kinder Morgan, I think, is is probably the best managed and my favorite right now because it's, I think, critical energy infrastructure or a critical infrastructure period. If you look at the investing environment that we're going into, we're moving out of high ROIC is the only thing that matters. And I think that we're going into things where you want critical infrastructure that has to be used for the next 20 years where you have inflation-proof contracts with um, credible investment-grade counterparties. That's a Kinder Morgan. And great capital allocators. It's like the old economy strikes back. Old economy strikes back. So, Duncan, when we think about the local portfolio, you spoke earlier and you said, you know, it's a balanced view on the commodity super cycle, and that's why our top three positions on BHP, Anglo's, and I can't remember the other one that you Glencore. said, Glencore. So when you think about how to manage the, the risks, the, the kind of interconnectedness that you spoke about earlier, and also possibly gain access to some of these beneficiaries, how would you describe how the South African portfolios are positioned? So I sometimes worry that I hedge my hedges, and you end up as average. But, um, you know, for example, in, in my slice of the portfolio, Sassel's my third biggest share now. So even though we get access to great energy names through, through Alex's portion of, of, of the portfolio, you know, South Africa, as we mentioned, is short energy. And if, let's just say, in an environment where oil goes to $200, let's use an extreme environment, you know, the South African consumer could be under extreme pressure. And you want kind of a hedge in the portfolio that's going to benefit it. And Sassel's been through quite a few years of hell, as everyone knows. The share may be up 20 times from the bottom, but it's still flat over a number of, of years, and we, we think they're doing the right things. So that's one way of thinking about balancing it. So I think, I mean, I always say that to people, you know, oil can go to 200. They said, no, it can't. I said, well, it went minus. Why can't it go to 200? But so the the number one risk we, we think about from managing a point of view, and we've said this in a number of our webinars and, and presentations to clients, is, is China. So the South African stock market has a very outsized direct and indirect exposure to China. So directly, I mean, the fairly obvious one is NASPAS. More than 100% of its value comes from Tencent. Richemont, probably half its luxury goods sales come from China and greater China. Um, You're sitting with BHP and Anglos. Obviously, somewhere between 50 and 60% of their revenue, if iron was high, even more comes from from selling commodities to China. And so you just have this like risk that if something went, went, went wrong there, and what I meant by the indirect benefit is what we described earlier, that China, South Africa, unfortunately, doesn't have many globally competitive export industries. Um, people talk about we export cars, but those are subsidized by the, the government. So actually, you know, what do we really have other than financial services and, and, and tourism? So it's good to sort of we earn all our money from our exports to pay for our imports, you know, basically through through mining. So it's quite good to have 
stocks that are not exposed to that. And the example I always use is British American Tobacco, not only because we think it's cheap from an absolute point of view, but British American Tobacco has no exposure to China. And it's very interesting why it doesn't, because its assets were nationalized. Right? So there's a tobacco monopoly in, in China. And AB InBev, which I think is a good example of where we can benefit from the current environment in two ways. One, AB InBev only has around 7% of its sales from China. Um, and most of the big consumer staple stocks are being smashed now on a relative basis because people believe it, believe they're going to have the biggest margin squeeze ever. So up until recently, as an example, aluminium was up three times. So you can imagine, what do you do with the cost of a can of beer now, right? Your input's gone up three times. And so we're slowly accumulating ABMBEV, which we think is one of the great free cash flow generators in the world. And hopefully, you know, we just build the position slowly as it underperforms when, when people are selling off the, the consumer staple. Has shares. it come off a lot? Well, relative to something like Richemont, up until a week ago, it was probably down 75% since it listed um, in South Africa, and probably versus the S&P, I'd say 60 70%. So they had $100 billion of debt. Um, they're bringing that down a lot with the cash flow they're generating. And um, they're pessimistic people in the world, and I'm normally one of them, but the one thing I'm not pessimistic on is people going out to party and have a lot of fun over the next while. And sort of the anecdotal evidence we've had from speaking to one or two of the international companies and from AB is hotels, flights, people just want to get out there. And I think one of the interesting ways to play the reopening is not just obviously through airlines and hotels, but actually, you know, the off-premises uh, and on-premises sort of alcohol sales from AB InBev and companies like that could do could do pretty well. Okay, so just going back to NASPERS, uh, and you talked about how dependent is on China. So we've seen an almost halving of the value uh, in kind of recent times. And, you know, the thesis that the discount to intrinsic value or the discount to the kind of the, the holding company discount would actually protect us didn't really hold up because it widened even further. So is NASPERS actually should be very attractive now? It should be in, in theory. And, and I do think NASPERS is probably the most complex um, sort of position we, we have in the portfolio. Because for one, for many years you held it, and even if it was one of your three biggest shares, it was still a negative alpha contributor because you just couldn't get to the weight it was in the index. Just to remind everyone, the discount went from about 40% to 70 So in other words, as Tencent fell, NASPERS fell more and, and, and process. And our colleague Tim wrote a very good article explaining it in the QC in more detail than I will now. What makes it difficult is it's not a spreadsheet problem. It's not a problem of how good an analyst you are. It's what do you do if you wake up the next day and there's sanctions on China? And don't forget, NASPASS has shifted the ownership of Tencent to Process, which is listed in the Netherlands. And I just can't see the Netherlands siding with China and Russia. I could see South Africa siding with, with China and, and Russia. And then we saw what happened with the Chinese stocks, the Golden Dragon Index, the day after the Russian stocks were suspended. Everyone just sold the Chinese stocks first and asked questions later because they don't want to be stuck in the same situation. So Tencent is still in the same competitive position. Yes, ByteDance, which owns TikTok globally, but I've forgotten the name of the, the local product in China, but growing extremely strong. The uh, competition's going more. Same as Alec mentioned with the cloud. I mean, it's just them and Alibaba. Um, the banks are coming under regulatory pressure, so the fintechs within Tencent. So it's not the company it was. But it's still an incredibly strong company with strong moats. But I think it's more valuable to a Chinese investor than a foreign investor because of these risks that you can't really quantify. So what we've been doing is limiting the position size, um, which has turned into a good idea. I think Alec might know that uh, uh, one of the biggest mistakes you can make is if you average down and you're not sure because then you end up, you think, well, I've only put 2% of position into this one stock, but actually you've invested six. Because you were yeah. buying the whole way down, and that looks fantastic when it works out, uh, but it, go, it can look really terrible when it goes the wrong way. So we've almost let the position sink to a level where we feel comfortable today. And what I meant by hindsight, I think in two, three years, someone could say Tencent is down 60%. It was a fantastic business. NicePass was a 70% discount. This was the buy of a lifetime. And the same person could say to you in three years, well, Chinese stocks are sanctioned. <laughs> the Chinese economy has imploded. You know, there's, they've invaded Taiwan. How could you have owned this when you knew the risks that were out there? And I think that's what just makes it such a tricky, such a tricky investment proposition at the moment. Isn't there an element of recency bias, though? I mean, we, we're sort of worried about the sanctions because we've seen it play out in kind of common prosperity over the past sort of six to 12 months. And it's one of those low probability but high impact events, which are actually quite hard to 
uh, incorporate when you're valuing a business? Yeah, so what we've tried to do, um, I think it's very arrogant for someone on the southern tip of Africa to say they understand what's going on in the Chinese Communist Party. Just to remind everyone, they're not elected. There's no, there's no voting polls, right? So whether the population likes you or whether the population is dissatisfied. And I think what we've tried to do is we've tried to find people who are very bullish on China. We try to find people who are very bearish. We try to find people who call themselves realistic. We've spoken to our colleagues in Hong Kong, which I guess is China now, the Orbis Emerging Market Team. And we try to get a whole lot of different views and bring them in. And it's amazing how experts, they can all be experts, but they come up with very different ideas. But I do think whatever you thought Tencent was worth, it's worth less because the CCP have made the way they're going to act in the future far more transparent in, in my view. And Alec, when you think about China uh, and the China exposure and what you can access there kind of for the purposes of put, putting together the Orbis Global Balanced Fund, you know, what's, where do you see the opportunities? Would you, have you invested in Aspas or Process? Uh, and if not, yeah. why not? We, we've been very light in, uh, in the Chinese internet names. And from a balanced fund perspective, we felt better in the dividend yielding, much more diversified big semiconductor names, so the Taiwan Semi and Samsung, where they sell to everybody. And they are uh, – the, the countries are behind them as national champions. You might see the chairman of, of Samsung get thrown in jail every other year, but that just seems to be a Korean thing. But Korea, Samsung Electronics is the most important company in Korea, and um, Taiwan Semiconductor is the most important company in Taiwan. So we've had about 8% of the portfolio over the la- on average over the last three years in those two names and a 2 3 4% in the Chinese internet names. Now I think we have just about the same amount of hedging as we do uh, NetEase and Nespers. But one, one thing I, I, I'd want to mention about the, uh, the unusual time we live in in this regard is for a company like Tencent, which is an incredible company, I mean, there's there's maybe five companies in the world that are as accomplished and excellent and well-run as, as Tencent. The gradient that it has between what the downside case could be and what the upside case could be is, is bigger than you would have with a $500 million U.S. startup, tech startup. It's just absolutely crazy. You could have, you could have the Chinese Communist Party wake up one day and nationalize them. That's entirely possible. You could equally have, and I, and I think uh, what we're thinking about increasingly here is you could have a change in attitude. And I think I'll leave it at that and won't go into how you can have a change in attitude in China, but we can probably let our, our imaginations run wild where we wake up one day in October or November to a, we're going back to national champion tech companies and we're going to rejoin the the global community on and uh, commerce and we want to make everything for the rest of the world we could go back to where we were two three years ago and 10 cent could what oh, add a zero yep. on the back of it just incredible that w- that would be counted to most of the science that we've seen you know across the globe because that would be going towards globalization as opposed to everyone trying to protect their turf. And that's why weirdo contrarians think about these things. So Duncan, if I, I just want to go back to, we talked kind of earlier about how South Africa would, it would, there would be a tailwind for South Africa if we saw a longer run in the commodity market. Um, but there are obviously a lot of other factors kind of which play into, you know, consumer strength and the kind of average kind of corporate governance and strength of corporates and essays. So maybe the one thing that's on a lot of investors' minds or when I speak to advisors, it's kind of how does our own peculiar energy crisis and so our electricity shortage, how does that play out um, in terms of dampening growth over the next three to five years? So I think when we look at it from a company point of view, um, obviously it's not great, right? You run factories, your lines have to stop. You know, Lots of these things have to keep running, especially the, the big manufacturers. You can imagine the mines. But interestingly enough, most it does show you what you can do when you have to do it. I mean, the energy consumption and usage of most South African companies has just dropped massively. I'm talking outside the big mining companies. I mean, the retailers, because you, you had to reduce your energy usage because the price was going up 15%, 20% a, a year. So one, the people have become more efficient. 
I, th- I think two, obviously for the companies, leaving aside the obvious effects, you become less profitable, right? Because instead of building a factory for 100 Rand, you have to build it for 115 because you have to build backup generators. You have to go and build um, all the things that can keep the factories going during during blackout. So it's not great. And I also think it's not great for consumer sentiment, right? When you're sitting in the dark and, 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 and it's cold. Um, but I think Alec and I were chatting about it before the podcast, you know, when you look at South African bonds and you speak to people who avoid them, they think about the catastrophic scenario, right? Which is a blackout. So not load shedding, that you wake up and we like Nigeria or Zimbabwe where there's no electricity for like days. Um, and obviously that's a sign of a, of a failed country normally. If you look at places where they're blackouts, and Alec would say that's probably California, when you look in their blackouts, you know, and another failed country. <laughs> the, um, you know, that's, that's the real downside. You don't want to wake up and it's, you know, you look on the app and it's stage nine or 10. That's, that's the real problem. I think if it stays where it is, it's not great. It's not great for growth. It's not great for the country, but you can get, you can get through it. You adapt, right? You, you adapt, but it's really that really bad scenario. Um, I think what we worry about more, what's come from it is when I look back, there used to be lots of listings of, of good businesses. I'm not going to say just listings, right? And, you know, there's no, I haven't seen a new Mr. Price. I haven't seen a new Aspen. I haven't seen a new Discovery, you know, businesses that come onto the market. And I think if you're going to start a new business in South Africa, it's pretty challenging, right? And now this just makes it, probably just makes it more challenging. I mean, I guess the counter view and I'm a bit more of an optimist than you are, is that margins are depressed because businesses have had to run at a structurally higher cost and they would, you know, in an environment where electricity is more freely available and businesses are more adaptable and presumably this is well known and therefore all in valuations. So if we look back at, there are two ways to look at it. If we look back when we had a really great six years in the beginning of the 2000s, South African consumer shares were amazingly cheap, right? Margins were low. The economy hadn't grown for a long person. Interest rates were high. So interest rates were going to come down. And then you had this massive volume growth in the economy as we can do the debate how um, sustainable it was over the long term. But lots of government spending, social grants coming in for the first time, a bit of a mining boom, and that moved the economy. And yes, the earnings went through the roof. If that happened again, the same thing would happen, right? This is not, you're not buying con- companies in a country that's been growing six, seven percent, that's been attracting lots of competition. If you had to get volumes going through most of our, our business, our banks want to lend. Our manufacturers want to manufacture more. It's just that demand is, 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 is not there. And if that had to come through, I agree with you. And plus, we were pretty f- underowned by foreigners which is something that also happened in the first three months. Uh, we used to go to investment conferences and all the big global asset managers would be here and they would be paying 20 to 30 times earnings for our consumer stocks, saying they're the best run consumer stocks in emerging markets. That could happen again, but it's not there now, to your point. It's not in the, in the current prices. Can these um, pledges of, of loans and covering loans and stuff that are sort of flooding, seem like they're flooding into South Africa, can that provide a catalyst for this? It could, but I think, Things are actually doing stuff. I mean, we had money to build Kusili and Madupi. It's just they went like 10 times over price and nothing ever gets gets done here. Um, I think that's the real problem. Um, I was remarking to someone the other day, when you look at the problems, when you come from Cape Town Airport and look at the housing problems you have, you go to the Philippines, they build like half a city in like three, four months with those big property developers. Like, why can't we just get five of them to come here? But the problem is then lots of people aren't making money on the, on the side. So, you know, we need to... We need to produce things. But if the Western world is happy to give us lots of money, I'm sure we'd. it's better than nothing, right? Yeah. It's is it nothing. talking about the Western world possibly giving us money then, Alec? If you were to look at South African bonds relative to U.S. bonds, and we know that South African bonds are, <clears throat> the 10 years are, what, close to 10, 10.1%, 10.1%, and uh, U.S. is closer to, what, 23 and U.S. inflation or short-term inflation is higher than South African inflation at the moment. Uh, and this is sounding like quite a leading question. <laughs> would you, of the two, what would you, what would you invest in? And would you, sorry, would you be worried about the blackout scenario and outcome that Duncan just alluded to, which is why foreign investors, some of them, don't buy our long bonds? So the, the bonds look cheap, and Mark's been uh, Mark Donley Owen has been pinging me on them for months and quarters. Uh, and I, but it didn't really dawn on me because I just didn't listen to Mark until he came down here and saw presentation after presentation that showed, um, you know, SA with lower inflation and higher rates, which is how often has that ever happened? Um, you did look at Brazil, yes, we have looked at Brazil, yeah, we have looked at Brazil, 
uh, and we decided on the banks in Brazil. It's just an easier way to play it. Uh, it's uh, more liquid and, uh, and just less risky in getting the, getting the trade done and keeping up with it, really. The banks we know. We've been in Itau for seven, eight years. Uh, is it's a good reason to buy Itau. The, uh, so it looks, it looks interesting. Uh, and when I look at the, at the problem with ESCOM and this constant reminder that it, that it delivers to people when they come down here to consider uh, owning SA bonds and the, they're in the hotel and the power goes out at seven on the dot, and then five seconds later the generator kicks in, that, that certainly puts that question mark in the back of their mind. But the way I would view that at this point would be that's fixable. And it, and now I have a reason for why they're priced the way they are. Because oftentimes in contrarian investing, if you can't figure out why it's priced where it is, who's worried and what are they worried about, you shouldn't go near it because it's, it's something. So I, I think, yeah, it's, it's interesting. I don't know how much um, it would make sense to buy in something like the balanced fund when we are attached at the, at the hip with, uh, with Alan Gray balanced, but could be interesting. So maybe just one thing on the time. So I always think the very important number in South Africa is 10. And what I mean by that, that's what the 10-year bond trades at. Whenever it's gone above 10, the great financial crisis, Nenegate, Coronagate, everyone bought it, right? So the buying area was as soon as you go past 10, if that changes, you'll see people won't buy it. And that'll be the signal that foreign investors and local investors have changed their mind. Effectively, 10 becomes the floor. And there's a different ceiling rather than 10 being the ceiling and, and coming back down. I think it's a very important thing we watch uh, from the fixed income side. And the, the last thing for us is when you're, buying a, when you're buying a bond, you're buying a currency. And it doesn't make any sense to hedge the currency when you're buying a bond, uh, except for the Japanese who do all kinds of weird things with carry. But uh, the RAND is, is just too expensive to hedge anyway. But the, the, the RAND looks interesting compared to the dollar. The dollar has just been a rocket ship for transient reasons, whether it's Ukraine or... Up, an up, upward yes, trajectory. Upward, upward trajectory for the country that has the worst balance sheet in the world. Uh, worst big country <laughs> balance sheet in the world. It makes no sense. So something like Iran could be a, a good place to hide. And if you do it via 10% yielding government treasury or something, that's, that's a great way to do it. And Duncan, I've often heard you call the RAND the random. What's your, like, where do you think the RAND will be in five years' time? First of all, I want to say, like, compared to what, right? So Alex okay, talking, to the dollar. Alex talking about the dollar index. So the dollar's been strong against everything, right? So the RAND's actually been stronger than people realize if you had to compare it to the euro. So, yeah, I mean, in a commodity bull market, I could see us depreciating just by the inflation differential. But the way I've always said to people is if the RAND is, let's just call it 15 Rand 50 today, I'd be more surprised if it was eight than it was 25. That's how I think about it. Because you're never going to know where the currency is going to go. You have this asymmetry in your mind. As I mentioned earlier, you know, the yen has depreciated 30%. Japan's not some backwater emerging market. You know, in a year, they've lost 30% of their currency. And, you know, sitting in South Africa, we're used to currency fluctuations. You know, many of the people in developed markets are, are not. And then I start going, wow, would I want to invest in the euro? Whew, like, I'm not sure I'd want to invest in the euro. Japan's probably printing as much money or more money than the U.S. So, yeah, it becomes a little interesting. And when I look at the stock markets that have been strong in the first quarter, it's been Canada mining, you know, Australia mining, South Africa mining. Brazil, the Brazilian real has been stronger than the Rand. Okay, it came from a worse, a worse area. So you can kind of see the trends that, that, were, that were there. And that's despite a, a strong dollar. Um, I do think the one thing that people do underappreciate a bit, and we see it a bit when we look in Africa for the Africa funds, is if you have dollar debt, which lots of companies do, right, because they borrowed at low dollar rates, or countries have dollar debt, guess what you need to pay your debt back with? Dollars. <laughs> so that's why there's often a demand for dollars. And if you don't have dollars, you scramble to, to get them. And it's one of the things I've never got my mind around. In Nigeria, sometimes you can't find $20 million, but the U.S. will print a billion dollars in a day. So instead of sending a whole lot of U.S. college students to Nigeria to do university VAC work to help people, just phone Jay Powell and say, please send a billion dollars of that over that you print every day. It doesn't cost everything. And it's one of the bizarre things about the world at the moment with, with economics. So, Alec, how do you think about um, 
the currency risk that Duncan's just talked about from the um, perspective of the Orbis Global Balance Fund, you can make active currency decisions if you're worried that your the currency that constitutes the highest weight in the index has the worst balance sheet, uh, and some of which has been tailwinds or not to become headwinds. How, how do you diversify against that risk? A lot well, of gold. <laughs> we have been um, we've been cutting back the dollar for a long, long time, and it's been wrong, wrong, wrong. Um, Right now, we are uh, we're just incrementing, continuing to increment towards the resource currencies. So, as mentioned, the Canadian dollar, the Aussie dollar, uh, the Brazilian real, uh, Norwegian kroner. So far, not the South African rand, but it's it's in that same group, and um, and taking from uh, the euro. So six months ago, it would have been out of the euro into those resource currencies, which I. Turned out to be a, a, a timely thing. Also out of the pound, and just to just to remind everybody, we don't look at currencies as a as a money making operation. We l- use currencies to toggle or uh, moderate the risk that we have in the bonds and the equities. So understanding that BP is not a not a pound currency, and uh, Mitsubishi is not a not a yen uh, industrial. Uh, we have to do all that math off to the side and figure out what our real currency exposure is in the portfolio and then use hedging to get back to where we think uh, a reasonable uh, place is to be to maintain purchasing power. And that gold, which is the ultimate hard asset, we consider to be both a commodity and a currency. We view We use our viewfinder both ways, and there's compelling cases on both. But just considering it as a, as a currency, nobody is printing gold. There's some dude printing uh, dollars like crazy. There's someone printing euros like crazy. There's someone printing yen like, I don't know, the machines must be redlining. And uh, there's, there are people printing cryptocurrencies. Maybe not Bitcoin, but the total, the total cryptocurrency base is expanding wildly. And people don't just say, well, you know, I'm not only investing in, in Bitcoin, so I don't care. People sell their Bitcoin to buy the new coin, the new, the new cool coin. So the... Um, the, the cryptocurrency uh, issued by God 7,000 years ago seems like a, a decent place to be from a currency standpoint. Oh, that could open up a rabbit hole and a whole lot of crypto-related questions, but that would be uh, an episode on its own, yes. I think. So I want <clears throat> to just go back to kind of talking about some of the actual individual decisions that we would make in the portfolio. So if we think inflation is going to be a problem locally and globally, then surely we would want to own the businesses that have much better pricing power uh, and are more durable. So we should be buying more of Mr. Price and ShopRite and not owning Woolworths. So, well, our biggest share has, I think, the best pricing power, which is British American Tobacco, because people are used to cigarette prices increasing every year and they seem to have managed their supply chain pretty well. You know, we own Glencore, which were beneficiary, although mining companies are also going to face in inflationary cost pressures, which we've already seen in the latest set of results. And Alec might be able to comment more if we have time later, but I mean, Walmart and Target have been smashed the, the last week. I mean, Walmart, we consider probably the most stable retailer in the world. It's super powerful with its supply chain and the share fell 20% in two days. It just couldn't pass on the, the cost of goods. So it's, it's getting a basket together. I don't think there's any company in the world that can pass on the kind of commodity increases we've seen, but we also try to avoid companies like the telecoms operators. I mean, most people just expect their data prices to fall all the time. You know, voice costs fall all the time, but probably 30, 40, sometimes 50% of your costs are in dollars because Ericsson runs your network. You have to, if you're not MTN, you have to run your um, towers in, in Nigeria with diesel generators because, you know, there's, there's just not electricity supply. So we do think about it a lot, but I do think the squeeze could be pretty epic on, on most companies once the hedges roll off. And I think that's what we haven't seen. Most companies have hedged their input costs, like, three or six months or nine months in advance. And as roll, those roll off, they'll be exposed to, to spot input prices. Alex, so if we look at kind of how the markets pulled back, uh, we, we started off the episode talking about it. Surely some of these names, some of the, some of these technology names are looking attractive or or is that, am I falling into the same sort of mistake that you spoke about so that people you're, say, oh, they're like 17, 18 times and... You're pretending to. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we have, we have um, been assigning a name each of these fallen angels that, that have been mentioned in the past as the next Microsoft or the next Amazon. 
Um, and they're down 60, 70, 85%. We'd like to get the next Amazon or Microsoft. So it'd be fantastic for us to be able to do that. And they're, they are down a lot. So we're, we're working on these are things like Palantir, Upstart, uh, Netflix. And when we look at them, I think Netflix is, I wouldn't put Netflix in this category. There's no there there in a lot of these. Or they aren't, they aren't close to what they're being advertised as. And, t- and take something like a Palantir, which people may know or may not know. But Palantir has been billed by Wall Street as uh, the ultimate uh, intelligence consultant or intelligence app and uses AI and machine learning, you know, to produce amazing results for the defense department, for the government, for leading countries, uh, countries and, and companies around the world using this incredible AI thing. I think AI is in every sentence. When we tore it apart, it's a consulting company that has an AI engine as a, almost as a marketing tool where all the data that goes into the AI machine has to be groomed by people. And then the, the machine puts something out and then you have consultants on the other end that do a bunch of work on it and then they make a recommendation. No different than KPMG or ENY or Accenture or any of these others. So that's kind of what we're finding is uh, a name that's, that's, that's wrapped up and marketed as one thing is actually something much more mundane. Maybe the one difference is they might have paid their employees more than they paid Duncan in his first two weeks. Well, they, <laughs> but they paid him in stock, so they didn't pay him anything. So you said Netflix to one side. Duncan, like Netflix has made a significant investment in content over the last couple of years, and you know we all know content is king. Would you own Netflix or multi-choice? Well, um, as you know, I'm, I'm a bit of a contrarian there, so I've owned multi-choice for a while. It's exactly the kind of stock that I think um, – reduces the risk in the portfolio. Very strong moat, very big cash flow. They've got a big division in Africa, which is still loss-making, that's coming back to zero. They're the biggest local content producer. And what I really love about it, it's actually one of the interview questions we asked them, and when people come to the investment team, from today, in 10 years, who will have greater revenue in South Africa, Netflix or multi-choice? And almost anyone under the age of 25 says Netflix. And they have no idea what they're talking about. <laughs> I mean, multi-choice already makes over 10 billion rand operating profit in South Africa. It's got sort of 10, sort of 9 million subscribers. They're going to be the biggest content producer. And I'll tell you something that's very interesting. Multi-choice is up five times versus Netflix over the last year. So it was very interesting. As Alex said, you often get these narratives and you stand at an investment conference and say, I like multi-choice. People say, but I like streaming. And then they forgot, well, there's Disney, there's Hula, there's Amazon Prime, and all Paramount. those ones. Guess where you access all of those now at a discount? On multi-choice, on your similar thing. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's a contrarian one. I'm not sure it's going to work, but it's a very defensive stock, and it's something we, we would own to a great extent in the stable fund, for example. Of course, now that you've told everyone what our um, interview question is for an analyst, you're going to have to get another one. Um, <clears throat> Alex, I got one sort of last question for you, and it's a bit of a sort of philosophical one. So... Right at the very beginning, I asked you kind of what do you think people are missing? Uh, so maybe I would say reframe it slightly differently. We've, we've talked about a lot of the issues that uh, are maybe quite well known or well discussed, so an energy crisis and the food crisis and inflation and commodity cycle. and uh, what do you? But typically, actually, what disrupts markets is the stuff that we're not talking about. So if you were to give kind of one parting piece of advice for people listening uh, you know, what would you say they should actually be cognizant of? So what's the biggest risk or the biggest upside opportunity? We've had 14 years of um, of HIROIC-only, safe, predictable, uh, great story companies being the place to invest. That's, all, that's two or three generations of, um, of inve- investment analysts in our industry have only known one type of market. And I've, if it's one thing I can, if it's one thing I feel confident as, I can guarantee that the next 12, 14 years aren't going to be like that. I don't know exactly what it's going to look like, but I know it won't be that. So my piece of advice is figure out what you think it's going to be like. Okay, Duncan. So now if, if you think about the Alan Gray Balanced Fund and, you know, as Chief Investment Officer, you're responsible for the overall kind of performance of the portfolio. You know, what would be the, what would be the one key takeaway from this, 
that you would want advisors to kind of go away and tell their clients? That we think about things a lot. <laughs> it's not easy, right? You can, as I mentioned, you can hedge your hedges, you can hedge the hedge that hedges something. Um, this is very difficult, but we do think a lot about putting the portfolio together. As you mentioned, it's not finding the 20 cheapest ideas or the 20 best ideas we have and ranking them from 1 to 20 and sticking them in at, at an equal weight. You know, we do think a lot about how different scenarios in the world and, and how, you know, it could affect the portfolio. What that means is it would be nice to be the number one manager, but it's not what we're aiming for. We're aiming to give people a great return through the cycle. And sometimes that means you could be right near the top. And sometimes that could be mean you, you're right near the bottom. But we're going to do, you know, what we think is right from a risk return perspective. Thanks, everyone, for listening to today's episode. Uh, it was a wide-ranging conversation. We started off talking about the global market volatility and the sell-off and tech names and whether or not this is the end of the sell-off or the start. We talked that extended into discussions on the energy crisis, the conflict and the human tragedy in the Ukraine, how this is moving into higher commodity prices, but ultimately... You know, how are we thinking about all these global and macro events to make the best investment decisions and position the portfolios for what we think look like a wide range of future possible outcomes? We welcome your feedback, suggestions and questions. So please drop us an email on info at alangray.co.za if you'd like to provide your perspectives. Finally, please remember that Alan Gray is an authorized financial services provider. If you want to view the T's and C's, explore the latest investment insights including any articles which may have been covered or mentioned in today's episode and to find out more about our product offering please visit www.allengray.co.za until next time i'm tamron lamb from allen gray <laughs>